Good evening, everyone. I'm Carol Olson Day of the New York Times, and I'm delighted to welcome you to tonight's Times Talks. We're live here at the Times Center in New York, and we're live around the world on the web at nytimes.com opinion. This week, 100 writers from 25 countries are in New York for the annual Penn World Voices Festival of International Literature, which this year is celebrating the 90th anniversary of Penn American Center. The Sunday Review section of the New York Times invited three of those writers from Canada, Britain, and the United States to consider the question of America and its role in the global political culture. Their compelling and distinctive essays were published Sunday, and tonight we are delighted to have them here to discuss their work and their perspectives. You'll hear much more about their work and about these distinguished talents from our moderator. If you were to do a search on nytimes.com, you would find out that as chief film critic of the New York Times, he reviews hundreds of movies a year, files in-depth reports from the major festivals, and contributes numerous critics' picks videos to the website. But you'd also discover that he writes about ideas and trends for the Sunday Review, culture for the Sunday Magazine, and books for the book review. Before joining the Times in 2000, he was a Sunday book reviewer for Newsday and a frequent contributor to Slate and the New York Review of Books. So please join me in welcoming Tony Scott and our special guests, E.L. Doctorow, Margaret Atwood, and Martin Amos. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Um, I, I could easily spend uh, the next 90 minutes just um, introducing the, the three people to my left, um, who I'm sure uh, are familiar to many of you. But um, just to make the, the proper introductions, um, E.L. Doctorow, uh, author of many, many novels, including Ragtime, Homer and Langley, The March, um, and many others. Margaret Atwood, author of Oryx and Crake, The Blind Assassin, Handmaid's Tale and, and many other novels and essays and other works. And then Martin Amos, um, whose works include the, the Pregnant Widow, The Information, Money. I'm sure you all have your, your favorites from each of them. And uh, you will later on have a chance to um, ask uh, each and all of them um, what, whatever is, uh, is on your mind. Um, my own job uh, tonight, um, I'll be very pleased uh, if I say very little and, um, and nothing memorable, um, and uh, so that we can have a chance to, to listen to these three guests. But I, I think the place to start, um, the, the kind of uh, the net that the New York Times cast that caught them all, uh, was a group of essays um, that they wrote in the, for, for the Sunday Review this past Sunday that, that I imagine many of you have seen that were sort of about the question 
um, the kind of question that, that tends to come up um, here in this country often, you know, every four years when we have our elections, what, uh, what is the, the, the nature and the, the role and the identity of, uh, of America in the world? And, and politicians and, and journalists have their version of an answer to this, but um, it's, it's always, I think, very good to hear from uh, imaginative writers. Um, so the three of them um, wrote three very different and, uh, and, and I think extremely uh, rich and suggestive um, essays. And, and I thought we could start, uh, if there are people in the audience who haven't read them or, or read them over, over coffee and then went out for Bloody Marys and forgot about them on Sunday, um, to, to remind, uh, to sort of call those, those um, to mind. So, um, and of course, it, it, one of the interesting things about this assignment is, is only um, one of the three authors is, is writing from the perspective of an American. Um, the other two uh, belong to our, our um, let's say, our, our sister and mother countries um, in the English language world. Um, so why don't we start with, uh, with you, uh, Mr. Doctor, and you could tell us give us an idea of what you wrote and, 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 and what, what kind of thought process the, the, the question provoked for you. Well, I was um, reflecting on this assignment and um, occurred to me that we were uh, becoming a, a distortion of ourselves over the past 10 or 12 years, um, beginning with the unfortunate uh, circumstances of the 2000 election uh, where the Florida count was suspended and, and the Supreme Court justices appointed uh, George Bush as president. And um, uh, his administration followed with uh, uh, numerous um, violations of the Constitution. It is true that um, he had predecessors in President Nixon and President Reagan, but where they were careless or indifferent to the Constitution, it seems to me he was reckless and um, blasphemed. If, if you think of the Constitution as the sort of the sacred document of this society, uh, the covenant was broken. And um, as with the ancient Hebrews, when you break the covenant, you're in bad trouble. And I think that set off um, uh, a certain kind of madness in this uh, political life of ours, uh, even though President Obama was elected. And um, uh, I, in this piece, I, I seem to find um, the arc going through these Supreme Court decisions, where um, after doing what they did, the uh, uh, really disastrous decision of Citizen United versus the Federal Election Commission, where uh, corporations were seen to be uh, people who had the right to express themselves politically. Uh, that is such a weird reading. And um, a corporation uh, can only act one way. It can act against its own... In, uh, in, uh, a human being can act against his or her own interests, but a corporation can't. And if, um, if you're a corporation that uh, makes cigarettes and, uh, you, and cigarettes cause lung cancer, you will continue to sell cigarettes. Uh, 
um, if you're uh, an energy company in in the Midwest and you know that you your spewings cause acid rain to fall over the lakes and forests of the of this eastern seaboard, um, you will do nothing about it. And uh, you, if you're a multinational corporation, you'll park your profits overseas. Um, uh, and avoid U.S. taxes, and uh, it seems to me that, of course, people run corporations, but they're subservient to this categorical imperative: of a corporation is is exists to produce wealth, and um, it also, whatever the individuals, the investors, or the workers, or the executives think, uh, they will operate for the sake of the corporation uh, to keep their jobs or to save their investments or in the case of CEOs they'll keep their pictures on the front covers of uh, business magazines and uh, uh, it's it's insane to to think that uh, a, a fiefdom like that uh, would have the privileges of of a person's vote and then the final uh, Decision just the other day, it seems, where they ruled that um, the conservative majority ruled that uh, uh, it was possible for uh, it was uh, police departments anywhere in the country could uh, strip search anybody uh, for whatever reason they felt necessary, and I think that was really uh, strange. I mean, Joseph K. in the trial. Uh, he has a hard time, but nobody asks him to take his clothes off. <laughs> so uh, uh, that, that's sort of the arc of the way the piece went and uh, uh, the idea of losing our, however illusory, the sense of our exceptionalism, I think is no longer, um, we, it's no longer sustainable. Well, that was, I mean, that was the, the, the theme, and I think the, the, the title, at least, that was, was given to it was, was unexceptionalism, the yeah. idea that, that, that whatever um, distinction we had from, from other countries in the realm of our politics and of our constitution has been, um, has been undone uh, in, the last, in the last... Yeah, uh, we're becoming progressively unexceptional in, in terms of our secret warrantless searches of people's uh, homes and businesses and records and our data mining and all the um, subversions of what we think of as as uh, life in the United States. Uh, I actually think that uh, we're a house of many mansions. <clears throat> if you're going to bring it down, you you bring it down from the top. That's the way houses get brought down. And... Um, uh, I think that a lot of damage was done on the roof there. And how about speaking? Well, we can continue that spatial metaphor since you're up above the uh, the roof of this mansion, sort of um, peeking over the the, the, the southern border. And um, you brought a, a very interesting, um, not just geographical but uh, interplanetary perspective um, to the to the to the question. So. Um, tell us a little bit about what uh, about what you wrote. Yes, well, and for, further to corporations, I, I don't think you should be allowed to be a person unless you can die. <laughs> unless you can die. Then mortality should be the point of entry. Yeah, that's right. So corporations don't die. They can get taken over, but 
they don't die. So they, they can merge. They can merge. That's different. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different thing. That's that's what they do. And they it's merge. different yeah. when when people merge. That's different from <laughs> corporations <laughs> merging. <laughs> We're only allowed to write about one of those uh, explicitly in the New York Times. Only the corporations, yes. Uh, Well, I was, and for that reason, I was a bit astonished that I got away with uh, my piece in the New York Times um, because it did contain the word uterus, and once upon a time, (laughs) not have been allowed to print that word in the New York Times. I had a lot of trouble with a review of John Updike's Witches of Eastwick. Uh, back in the 80s because it was very hard to review that book without mentioning certain kinds of bodily fluids. But you were not allowed to use those words in the New York Times then. You couldn't say pee. They said, this is a family paper. <laughs> so We, we ended still up kind of saying, try to keep it as dry as we can. <laughs> <laughs> we ended up saying bodily fluids, which was actually a lot worse. <laughs> so, so this time... I, what the Times asked was, how does America look uh, from an outsider point of view? How does this culture look? So I brought some outsiders into the piece who happened to be from Mars. And uh, we did vote on our pieces as to which was the silliest, and, and mine won. Yours, <laughs> yours was the most serious, and De Martin's was in the middle from point of view of silliness. But uh, I did have the Martians look at the United States through a couple of pieces of literature, foundational pieces, uh, two of them by Hawthorne, Young Goodman Brown, uh, through which we viewed America's suspicion of the neighbors, namely anybody who happens to live next door to you may be up to satanic practices, as we all know. And uh, the second one was the Maypole of Marymount, which was um, pleasure and gratification versus uh, stomping on it. Uh, which goes right back to the beginning. And then I looked at Moby Dick from the point of view of the Martians, who rightly identified the fact that it's about oil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it went on from there, but, and the Martians were warned against um, going to certain places outside New York City where they might be uh, misunderstood. <laughs> Confused with, in fact, uteri. <laughs> which they resembled, and put in jail. So uh, they're not going there. They're going to go to Radio City Music Hall instead. <laughs> well, what about Moby Dick? Moby Dick, they, about you, oil. Yes, I, I was interested in their reading of Moby Dick. They're sort of Marxist Martians. <laughs> well, I think Moby, you know, I think that's what Moby Dick is, in fact, about, and I, I think that Melville designed it very carefully uh, to represent a number of different segments of American society. It wasn't for nothing that he named the ship after an extinct um, native tribe and put three harpooners in there from different parts of the empire mm-hmm. and made the owners two hypocritical Quakers. I must admit I disagreed with that interpretation. What did you think Moby Dick was about? Well, I, I think uh, the key thing is the image of Moby Dick, who is a white whale, uh, and he describes it, as I recall, as the absence of color. And um, Moby Dick is, is the ineffable, uh, unmanageable universe. 
And it's not Ahab who's interested in money. He, he doesn't care about money. It's Starbucks who's interested in money. So I think the whole Mar- Martian <laughs> Marxist idea just collapses. No, no, no. The Quakers who own the ship are interested in money. They're very interested in money. Yeah, that's, that's true, but... But well, just think of Ahab as a CEO who's going off the rails. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes do. But Moby Dick doesn't can't stand for uh, good-natured nature. In fact, uh, he uh, disposes uh, what what Melville calls harlot's colors over nature. So he's something else. He's, so you can't make him an ecological plus. victim. Um, well, but then there's the... We're, we're going to get into this. I can see. <laughs> there's the chapter in which all of the whales are described, and then there's the other chapters in which the butchering and boiling of yeah, whales that, are described. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah, so you can't get out of it that way. No. <laughs> I'm not so sure. <laughs> You've all done the assignment, correct? <laughs> you, we'll collect your papers afterwards and... Um, and grade them. And uh, Martin, um, you, uh, your piece was more of a, a personal recollection um, of, of, of your own youthful encounters with, uh, with America. And, and what fascinated me about, about the three of them is, is the range not only of, um, of approaches and, and, and voices, um, you know, from, from the, the sort of the, the traditional American Jeremiah, if you want, for, uh, for, for, for Edgar's the the science fiction kind of speculative whimsy of, of Margaret's and, and, and the sort of personal... <laughs> you said it was voted the silliest. Well, that was other people. Okay. <laughs> playfulness. Can I say playfulness? <laughs> it was playful. It was serious, but... Um, but yours was, was, was in, a, in a vein of kind of um, personal, personal recollection and also touched on a, a, a key element of... of the American experience from inside or, or out, which is race. Yeah. Um, as we agree, my piece was quite silly, but it um, had a serious ending, a serious subject. It uh, begins describing, with a description of um, my brother and me coming to America age nine and ten, and we'd taken the precaution of changing our names before we left Swansea in South Wales. I was going to be Marty, and my brother had adapted, they're brilliant this I think for a ten year old, had adapted one of his middle names and rechristened himself Nick Junior <laughs> while ignoring the fact that there was no Nick Senior <laughs> um, so we were completely prepared when we sailed into New York Harbour um, I then said that Wales at that time, it had Celtiberians but um, I was already smoking cigarettes and stealing money out of my mother's handbag before I saw or before I met or even saw a black person. Um, When I was introduced to a black academic by my father, despite lots of prepping on the way, I burst into tears and said, you've got a black face. Uh, And he laughed a lot and said, I mean, it was a ridiculous little boy, and said, um, of course I've got a black face because I'm black, etc., then I uh, started uh, fourth grade, would it have been in Princeton, where my father was visiting professor, and, um, and soon got to be friendly with a, a black boy uh, called Marty. And I, I'd abandoned my name by then, and so my brother had gone back to being what we were, were before. And uh, there was this, this very, t- I think, 
impressive conversation we had where, I, using the come online of British school children, I said, simperingly, would you like to come to my house for tea one day? Um, and he, he was stalling. It was very noble. He said, mm, I prefer coffee. <laughs> uh, and I said, well, it's high tea with sort of buns and cakes, sticky buns, and, and you can have coffee. Um, and he said, nah, he said, your mother wouldn't like me. Uh, and I said, why not? And he said, because I'm black. And I said, and I know I said this, I don't remember saying it, but it was in my mother's diary, which I saw decays later. I said, my mother won't even notice you're black. <laughs> and he came to tea, and, um, and it, I thought it went very well. And then I went to his, his place in what was then the black neighborhood in Princeton. It's now, I gather, mainly Hispanic. And I could barely cope with it, the sense of otherness, my own otherness. Um, heavy, crushing self-consciousness. And I thought I was going to faint. Uh, and I wondered later whether that's what he felt at my house and what he felt on Main Street. Then I, I report that my father took another teaching job in America at Vanderbilt. And uh, where uh, he said it was the worst time of his life apart from his army service, which included the Second World War. Um, because at every social gathering, um, a professor of English would say something like, I can't find it in my heart to give a nigger or a Jew an A. Uh, a professor of English saying that. And he made the decision early on that he, he wasn't going to have a fight every night about this. So he just shut up. And, and you pay a huge psychological cost when you do that. And he said the tension of every gathering was dreadful for this reason. Um, I end the piece by saying that this was a long time ago, and in fact one of the most marked demographic trends in America as we speak is, is um, the exodus of black families from the nor northern states to the southern. So something really profound must have happened over those years. But I end with, um, with Trayvon Martin and... Uh, uh, as Edgar was saying about American law, uh, that masterpiece of jurisprudence, Stand Your Ground. Um, and I asked for the, this reassurance at the end of the piece. Is it possible, I'm talking about equality, not about anything one would like to happen, um, is it possible to confess to the pursuit and murder of a white unarmed white 17-year-old, white 17-year-old, and be released that evening without charge. Uh, and I wanted to be told yes. Uh, but in fact, as we all know, it's one of the, one of the uh, public secrets of America is that this happens all the time. And as the black godfather of my first son said, said who lost a brother in this way, he said, he said the death of a black male, a young black male, is of not much concern to the police departments of America. Uh, so <coughs> it started very silly, but uh, ended up quite serious. Well, I, I, I want to step back from it, uh, from, from these specific essays a little bit, um, but keep keeping them in mind, because this is... The, 
This is obviously not for any of you um, the first time you've you've entertained thoughts about about America and its and its role and its and its and its history um, and it, its nature. And I, th- I think that in 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 very interesting um, and 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 different ways, uh, the the sort of the the large presence. Um, in the world and in your own lives and your own imaginations of of, of this this very very um, complicated country with its with its very complicated and often terrible history has 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 come into play. So I wonder if we can we can sort of go go back the other way now. If you can um, talk a little bit about the 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 part that maybe in particular um, American literature has played. I mean I know. Um, you know, many many of the the, the writers, let's say, um, who influenced you were 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 uh, um, not not necessarily British, but 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 American. Um, and and I, I wondered, sort of, in in earlier in your in your in your career and in your progress as a writer, what um, what the idea or the reality of uh, of America, what kind of role it it, it had. In literature, in in your writing, or in just in my writing, you know, sort of in your your. Well, um, I'm not sure if this is, is coincidence, but uh, when England was the centre of the world in the in the 19th century, turn of the 20th century, um, it had the the novels reflected that they were huge novels about all parts of society. I'm thinking of Middlemarch and Bleak House and. Um, and they were 800 pages long and tried to be wholly inclusive of the, that society and, and it did seem to have something to do with political power then uh, England lost that power very dramatically and suddenly in the middle of the century bankrupted by the Second World War and as many people have written it felt as though England had lost the war, not won it. Uh, it, was, it was a dank, a miserable place. Um, and the center of gravity, the planetary center of gravity, had shifted to America. And with, with sinister instantaneity, started producing uh, world novels. Um, and the greatest American novel, perhaps, uh, I think the trail went cold. You know, Americans always feel they needed a great American novel to round out all the other benefits they enjoy. Um, I mean, no one goes on about uh, the great English novel, because we you know, take that for granted. Although they, <laughs> they do talk about the great Indian novel and the great Australian novel, mm-hmm. and it's, a, it's an emergent aspiration. A kind of an upstart, post-colonial... Yeah. But there in 1953, you got the, what I think is the great American novel, The Adventures of Augie March. Uh, and the quest was over almost before it had begun. Um, and then these enormous novels started appearing in America. Um, there was Dos Passos, etc. And, um, and w- with a markedly Jewish cast, um, and that perhaps was Saul Bellow's great achievement, was that to get the, the Jewish voice into the mainstream. Because this was at a time when Lionel Trilling was turned down for a job with a, a, at Harvard, I think, with a letter saying, I don't think someone of Mr. Trilling's background could be expected to understand English literature. Um, <laughs> I mean, well, we all blush about the past, but we have to acknowledge it. 
otherwise it rots the conscience. Um, and there, there were these huge, bursting American novels um, that were trying to do justice to America. And America was not like England in that, as Henry James said, and I think it's the, the first principle you have to absorb while thinking about America is that America is more like a world than a country. And it, it's nonsensical to compare what happens in Seattle to what happens in Massachusetts and certainly what happens in Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, they, they are different countries. Um, so I, I was just... Uh, as I was becoming a writer, I was aware that... that uh, that all the, all the ambition and all the energy seemed to be in America. And this was at a time when, uh, in England, in the 1970s, novels were about middle-class crises, um, and they were all 225 pages long. <laughs> and I thought, I, I sort of fancy the American route. <laughs> and, 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 and what about for... I mean, you... you Growing up and 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 starting to write um, and and reading uh, in in um, in Canada, um, which has its own, I think, uh, too little known um, down here, um, very robust and rich literary tradition. Um, but I mean, were, were you were you conscious of, of of the United States as as a kind of a, a, a literary space and as a, a space of the imagination? Let's say. Um, to, uh, to explore or to contend with? Very, very early because I'm of the comic book generation. And um, you won't remember this, but during the war... <laughs> no, I won't. But <laughs> <laughs> there were no colored comics. But right after, there was a great explosion of them, and they mostly came from the United States. And it would say at the back of the comic... These wonderful things you could collect, you know, you could collect popsicle sticks, and you could collect, you know, things off cigarette packages, and you could, and you could send in for wonderful things. And then it would say, "Offer good only in the United States," <laughs> and that was American exceptionalism. <laughs> <laughs> and at that time, I was living at the eastern end of Lake Superior. And I could see the United States. It was a kind of fuzz. You know, it's kind of green fuzz over there. And uh, that was where the offer was good. You can see how it would rankle. <laughs> anyway, sure, of course, Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer uh, were among the books that I read early on, although, although Huckleberry Finn is not really a children's book. Edgar Allan Poe, similarly not really a children's book, but in those days people thought if it didn't have sex in it, it was a children's book. So <laughs> why was my mind warped when I was nine by reading the collect and works of Poe? Never mind. <laughs> uh, yeah, so on, on through, uh, I just read everything, and I, I read everything partly because I did grow up in the woods and there wasn't any television uh, or movie theaters. So let us jump... Uh, to the point at which I get to graduate school, uh, Harvard, where they didn't hire um, women at that point. Uh, but they did say, you know, you have to fill your gap. And I said, what? <laughs> and they said, your gap. Your gap is American literature and civilization. So I had to go about filling my gap by studying American Puritanism, lucky me, with Perry Miller. Mm -hmm. 
is actually very interesting, American Romanticism. Um, the 18th, I actually took a course called Literature of the American Revolution, which began with the professor saying there wasn't any literature of the American Revolution because they were <laughs> too busy having the revolution. So we're going to have the literature just before the revolution, and then we're going to have the literature just after the revolution. So all of that was very interesting to me because at that point, uh, Canada <coughs> did not have a deep and rich whatever. It had a, <laughs> a society which was constantly saying to itself, do we exist? Mm-hmm. But help is on the way, because Canada, everything is explained by Lord of the Rings. Canada has <laughs> just got hold of the ring of power. Will it turn into the Dark Lord? We do not know. You mean just now? It's yes. Oh. It's got hold of the ring of power. What is the ring of power? It's the, and this matters, which you say. It's either the tar sands or it's the oil sands. That thing, the ring of power, beware. I could never be afraid of Canada. Because oh. <laughs> <laughs> it won't be your problem. <laughs> no, they're all very nice. What if there. it goes to the dark side? What if that? Oh, well. You think we're all too nice, but you see, you I'm haven't read nice. about Gollum and what that ring of power does to him. Uh. Well, um, I'm being silly. <laughs> I'm being silly. Okay, you, it's all right. I'm being you, a bit silly. You mentioned Poe. Uh, it's hard to imagine our literature without him. Although he was really a very bad writer, and uh, he was our greatest bad writer. <laughs> and, Are you going to have another fight about 1970 American <laughs> literature? No, and okay. and um, but he was not. A patriotic fellow. He had nothing but disdain for the people around him. America was booming at that time and expanding, and everyone was feeling very uh, bullish about the country. And he he ignored the whole thing. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. And possibly by way of some sort of heavenly vengeance, he was probably killed uh, during a voting in somewhere... uh, election somewhere in Baltimore and someone hit him over the head with a staff. Uh, uh, did I ever tell you I was named after him? No. Yes, I was. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, mentioned this, <laughs> I mentioned this before, but I, I think it was my father's idea. Uh, he was philosophically inclined, but he was uh, busy supporting us in, in the, during the Depression and couldn't give vent to his literary or philosophical uh, being. and But he named his child after a writer he admired. Well, he liked a lot of bad writers, I think. <laughs> but um, So I didn't, never thought of anything of this, except when I started to write. Of course, I wrote imitation Edgar Allan Poe stories. The cell was dark and dank. It was one of my opening lines. <laughs> And so uh, a few years before my mother died, I finally asked the question. I said, do you realize you and Dad named me after an alcoholic, uh, drug-addicted, delusional, paranoid, with strong necrophiliac tendencies? (laughs) And she said, Edgar, that's not funny. (laughs) 
I do think, um, of course, Mark Twain, um, and, and certainly you can see the creative process not so clearly in, in uh, Huckleberry Finn, but in Tom Sawyer, where uh, Tom has an idea or a fantasy, and then it, it's realized later as the author figures out, oh, this is too good just to drop. I'll play it out. And you can actually see the creative process in that book. But the novel that impressed me as being <clears throat> uh, Nailing America is Dreiser's Sister Carrie, mm. um, uh, where people don't have any substance to them except uh, as money supports them, as if money is the scaffold. Uh, uh, and everyone's concerned with money. And um, uh, as... as uh, Carrie goes up in life, Hurstwood comes down. And the critic F.O. Matheson said uh, that the great revelation of that book that everyone in America is either going up or going down. And it seems to me that that really caught us uh, brilliantly. Where Trice was <clears throat> sort of superseded by the Romantics of the, uh, the self, like uh, Fitzgerald and uh, Hemingway, and he sort of got lost in the shuffle. And and how I, I mean, it's it's interesting that you mentioned <clears throat> Dreiser and that sort of that that sense of of, of scale and of, of of the whole, you know, not just um, kind of individuals uh, making their own way, but as they make their own way and as they intersect. Um, Illuminating a whole a whole society. Yeah, he got he got us all pretty well. He 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 had everybody every class every every upper lower. And um, of course, he's a very slow, patient writer. And people think because of that, um, uh, is an old fashioned quality to his stuff. Because who he was reading were, were the um, were the Victorians really. And, but he's brilliant because everything is really balanced and there's, there are no faltering there. The, the tone is consistent, the pace is consistent. So he has a bad rap as a, uh, people think he's a bad writer. He's not. He's not at all. What would he be saying if he were with us today in 2012? Who would he be writing about? <sighs> Gee, that's a good question. Um, it always seemed to me that the Dreiser was... His books consisted of a series of job interviews. <laughs> <laughs> a series of what? Job interviews. Job. Oh. <laughs> well, um, um, you can make quite a good American novel out of a series of that job one. interviews. Yeah. It's a succession of job interviews. Yeah, well, maybe, but I, <laughs> I, um, I don't know what he would be doing now. Uh, um, he... Uh, his whole life was backwards. He started out <clears throat> as a um, fairly conservative, moralistic fellow. And as he got older and wilder, he became a, a, a communist. And he started to tell people, write letters to the president and do all these crazy things. And I, I don't know what he would do. <laughs> no. well, I think he would have a lot to work with. I mean, I certainly... Um... Yeah. In, in, in just 
being a uh, sort of a foreclosed homes, housing bubble, that kind of thing. Yeah, 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 and just these these kind of big ambitious figures. I mean, just what he would do with the uh, the modern media spectacle, I think, would be yeah. bankers. So, yeah. So yeah. if you were going to write the all-inclusive Victorian uh, touches every class thing about America, what would be your five principal characters? Now, today, uh, where would you get them from? What walk of life? Can I have a think about that? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. no, that's a great no. question. <laughs> but actually, I wanted—I wanted to to, to ask you to, the, to to follow up about your own attraction to the American past because um, it, it it's it's something that's really notable in so many of your novels. Um, you know, the the, the march, ragtime. Um, most of them, really, that 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 they're 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 kind of reconstructing or reimagining that that reality um, as it existed in the past, maybe with some um, sense of a of a perspective on the present. Or uh, well, I, I think all novels are about the past, actually. Um, some um, have public figures in them; some don't. I don't quite know how that happened with me. Um, but somewhere along the line, I realized that you could construct a novel uh, out of a period of time just as you could uh, from a sense of place. And, um, but I resist the uh, label of historical yeah. novel um, on my work. Uh, first of all, um, uh, for instance, uh, we don't think of... Uh, of uh, Hawthorne's um, Scarlet Letters historical novel it took place 150 years takes place 150 years before he was born and um, they said well, well how about putting uh, public figures in, in the book and setting it in the past is that a historical novel well not really um, not, not in any way that I can think of as, as an original Concept, um, and supposing you write about the past in a very personal way, as I wrote a book called World's Fair, which is a composition based on my own family and my own childhood, but nobody knows the people in that and sit in the 1930s. So, what's the ontological difference between that and, and a, a novel where every people are known publicly? So here's the thing. Um, we have a sense of time as flowing from the past to the present to the future. But as uh, physicists point out, um, a river can flow from one point to another, but what point does time flow? So it flows from itself. So it, time doesn't flow. It's, and then, of course, um, Einstein uh, discovered... Or, that time was the fourth dimension, so that the whole universe is set like a big square where every event uh, is set in place. And, and um, that's a theory of, of time that's called eternalist, eternalism. Mm. So I don't write historical novels, I write eternalist novels. And I was well, going to ask you a well similar... Played. Yes. <laughs> well played. Well played. I was going to ask you a, a similar question, but about the future in, instead of about, about the Well, the, the, future, the future is like the life after death. Nobody's actually been there. 
So you can, <laughs> you can make up what you like uh, as long as you're consistent. Um, however, I like my future to have some relationship to the present. Uh, in other words, I'm, I'm going for a, a sort of very, very thin degree of plausibility, if you like. What do you think? What do you think it allows you to do to, to sort of to, to, to write, kind of to speculate, to, to place your narratives in the in the future? What, well, what is it? why does one do it? Well, people yeah. do it for various reasons. Some of them are escapist adventure reasons, and and others are um, this is a blueprint. Uh, this is where we are now. Here's a blueprint of where it seems that we might be going. Is this where we want to live? You know, do we want to go down that road? And with some of those roads, the, the best way to have people go down them is to say nothing about them. You know, don't tell. <laughs> don't ask, don't tell. Uh, but if you really don't want to go down that road, you might say, uh, look out, this road doesn't look as if it's going to a very good place. So that's what those kinds of novels about the future are, are doing, and uh, they have done them for, for some time. So the idea being a kind of a, a, a warning, really. A, well, yeah, but you, you can't really write about the future because it doesn't exist. Right. <laughs> well, when so you write really about write, the... You're writing about the present, of yeah, course. Always. You're writing about your uh, feelings in the present, and even when you're writing about the so-called past, you're still writing about the present because somebody in the past would not have been able to see the past in that way at all. And, and what about, just to, to complete this, this, this slightly too schematic kind of dividing you up along dimensions of time, what about the present? Because it seems to me that, that your um, novels have periodically tried um, to, to take account of, uh, of the moment that, that, that surrounds them. Um, I very much like Edgar's point that um, historical novels are about the present, and the present is, is an historical novel, and writing about the future is about the present, because you extrapolate trends from uh, what you see might happen, and you explore it. And it's either a good idea and almost invariably a bad idea, because you, you can't write about good ideas. Um, but the, the present is very... Uh, is very uh, the past does exist the future doesn't exist but the present doesn't really exist either because it's it's t- in the process of turning into the past but i would say that what what has happened to the novel in the last 30 40 years is that the pace of history has picked up it's 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 accelerating and i think fiction has reflected that those huge meditative digressive novels that were in the bestseller list for months uh, 30 or 40 years ago would not, couldn't, could not be supported by an audience today and it's not just because people um, are less thoughtful it's because people are, are more impatient and the arrow of time and the arrow of development and plot is, much, is in much bolder type in the fiction fiction of today. And it's, it's, it's not a bandwagon that novelists jump on. It's because they're, they're responsive to these, you know, these um, convulsions and 
those sensations that we all have. And I would say that the, the novel is a much more sharper, pointed instrument than it used to be, and will continue. And when, and when you're reading The New Yorker, say, or The New York Review of Books, an interminable piece about Iraq, and you see a poem at the foot of the page. You think, what, what's that doing there? You know, I'm busy. Um, <laughs> because what a poem does, particularly a lyric poem, is stop the clock. It says, right, we're going to now examine this little epiphany, and you're going to put all your, you're going to concentrate on this and see what I felt, and you say to the reader, and this, you want you to feel it too. Um, but that's, that's very much imperiled by this acceleration of the speed of history. Do you think that, there, that that has something to do, too, with the, the, the acceleration and proliferation of, of, of information? Um, I mean, it's very interesting to me to, to, to think about the, the, you know, the, the, the three of you and, I guess, the, the four of us as being creatures of print in some way um, and sometimes feeling, you know, in this very building, the, the, the rapid obsolescence of that and... and uh, but but you or or you know following you on on, on Twitter as I as I faithfully do, um, and uh, but, but I wonder what your thoughts as 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 writers are about about the impact of that of this this this, this new way that discourse, information, stories um, are being distributed and experienced, and and if that what you think the, 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 the consequences of that have, have been or will be. Well, when radio first came in, everybody was mesmerized by it. Uh, and in fact, Hitler probably wouldn't have been able to Hitlerify himself so much had it not been for the fact that radio was new. People were sort of glued to it. You thought that the voice coming out of it was some supernatural kind of hypnotic voice. Uh, and then we got accustomed to it. And then television hit television hit and in the 50s people would would gather around the television set with their TV trays their TV dinners on their TV trays wa- uh, watching the screen uh, just mesmerized by it and now that Mad Mag- Magazine had a, a don't look down TV dinner hooked <laughs> <laughs> over the years and went there <laughs> But that doesn't happen anymore. It's, it's, it's there. People are conscious of it. It's, it's kind of on all the time, which is probably very bad for you. But Well, um, everyone but just has their... Is, is, is texting. Now the, it, right, my point. Now we're mesmerized by the shiny little screen, but that's not going to go on forever. In fact, you already are feeling some pushback and, and, uh, and resistance to that, and people... Uh, in online chats, this is why it's ironic. On an online chat, they will say, "What can I do about my internet addiction?" <laughs> 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 and there are people dealing with those questions. And there are even apps that you can get that allow you to turn it off for yes, a certain right, right, right. amount of time. Or, and I, when I did put that on Twitter, and they said, "Why not just turn it off?" <laughs> well, you have to pay money to get a clock thing that tells you you can that you're offline for three hours. But there is an addictive quality to all of these things because they give you a hit of, of pleasurable mm-hmm. adrenaline or whatever it is that they give you. Uh, but it's not... But the, the mesmerizing magic effect uh, diminishes over time and you find people going back to 
other things and making fetishes, for instance, of, of old black and white movies without sound uh, and, and starting to rave on about the textural qualities of the page. And now neurologists are doing work about on, on how the brain um, absorbs something on the page differently from how it absorbs information on a screen. And the brain has changed, in fact, as a result of this. But it can change back. It's yeah. not a permanent change. Mm. It's not like being a... But it, w- it will be a permanent change. No, it will not be a permanent yeah. change. <laughs> but people <laughs> are going to give up not, looking at the internet and go well, back you're not, to reading books. You're not born addicted to the internet any more than you're born knowing how to read. And reading itself, let us remind ourselves, is a pretty lately come technology. Uh, the, the primary thing in all of that is language and story, and those are, those are very old. Uh, but writing them down is, is pretty late on the timeline. How about that for a big wad of useless information? <laughs> in support of what you're saying, there was a writer, Frank Norris, American writer, and when the telegraphy came along, he thought that was the end of the world. Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, short. Yeah, short. Uh, ten why, ten why word messages would yes. destroy the, yeah. the language. Yes. But it, but is tr- it is true that when we get uh, some technology, it, it becomes essential, even though we didn't need it until it happened. Well, first it becomes pleasurable. Remember the old fantasies about the automobile showed an empty road, an empty road with you at the wheel in your shiny red convertible and the wind blowing your hair. When did that last happen to you? And let's <laughs> I think we can, um, in, in a moment, uh, turn it, open up uh, to some questions from the, from the audience. I think there will be, I can't really see, but there will be um, microphones and... Uh, you can um, and maybe they could assemble at them. Light, light up the, the house a little so we could yeah, see. Yeah, so we can, so we can see. Um, there will be microphones, I believe, in, in both of the aisles, so you can, uh, I think, uh, the best way is to make your way um, down toward them if you, if you have a, a, a question um, for, any of our, for any of our guests. And... Uh, You are the first. Come forward. Um, Hello. Hello there. This is really strange. Um, I thought we all should have stood up and applauded after you finished talking about your uh, essays that you wrote, particularly, Mr. Amos, for you, because they were so personal. You all were very, very vulnerable, and you, you gave us a wonderful look at ourselves as Americans. And I'm of the age where I've grown up through all of what you all have been talking about. So I have no question. I just wanted to tell you I really admire. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Praise is nice, too. Um. Well, of course, what we all want is for America to be what we once thought it was. That's what we would all really like. Well, what was that? What was that for you? I mean, how, how would you describe what in the fifties, exactly or or just 
Um, As a Canadian? Yeah. The, the fun, exciting, uh, progressive uh, dem- democracy as opposed to the really scary stuff that was going on behind the Iron Curtain. You know, that, that, those were the oppositional things at that time. Uh, and, of course, we all were very keen on freedom of expression, and we remain so, and that's why we're doing a pen event, you know, because once upon a time, and now in lots of other countries, um, if you publish a, an opinion contrary to that of the ruling government, you get, you get um, killed or put in jail. And part of what Edgar was writing about is, is that's now starting to happen here. And that is not our idea of what America uh, should be at all. I think with a lot of countries, you don't ask the question, what should it be? <laughs> but America has, has always had that question, what should it be? Because it did start as a, as a utopian community. So it is always examining what should it be as opposed to what it is. There have always been a, a narratives to keep us going, however um, little they had to do with the actual um, life we were leading through our history. That There was one narrative that I, I was taught as a school child that um, we didn't really get the idea of the Constitution at the age of seven or eight but we had the flag up on the stage, and the, that, the colors red, white, and blue meant uh, that we were in a country that was going to be fair to everyone, where the rich and the poor, the big and the little, and that people were coming from all over the world uh, to live here to get away from one kind of tyranny or another, and that uh, the government existed for the welfare of everyone, and uh, all of that was symbolized by the red, white, and blue. The other equally idealist uh, uh, narrative was that we are uh, rightfully the best country in the world, uh, and our hegemony is justified. Uh, Nothing has ever been as good as we are now, and the reason for that is our technological creativity our free market philosophy and the limited liability co- uh, corporation. <laughs> and um, uh, both those views uh, valued free speech, and, but the second view, narrative B, I would call it, uh, uh, worried that uh, we were always in danger of, of uh, becoming a socialist state and uh, the government should stay out of uh, our business. This was a business society, and they were both idealistic views. And and traditionally, historically, been argued through interpreting the Constitution. And uh, there have been periods when we've been expansive and generous, and other periods when we've been we've contracted and being mean spirited and negative, and uh, exist present ourselves with as promoting social triage. The question is, when does either of those go over the edge and uh, that argument can no longer be sustained? And that's what I think we're in danger of now, that uh, all these things have happened, and uh, so that sacred text of the Constitution uh, 
is beginning to uh, sort of burn at the edges. I just wanted to pick up on a comment that Ms. Adwood made um, earlier on about uh, writing about the future. Um, and I love science fiction, and I find that when I tell people I read it, they think that it's, it's sort of a much, much maligned, I think, um, area of fiction. And I think one of the things I love about it is it seems to me that it frees me up to examine my prejudices and behaviors outside of my normal constructs, and it helps me to examine them in a different way. And I realize that, um, Mr. Doctorow, that you said, right, you don't like to be thought of as historical novels, and I wonder perhaps, is that, do people judge those in the same way? Do people judge historical and science fiction, and they don't realize how much it frees the author up to actually take you out of your normal perspective? Well, the, uh, <clears throat> it's, it's a very fluid kind of thing. For instance, both Hemingway and Malraux wrote um, novels about the Spanish Civil War while it was going on and publishing their books either during the war or right afterwards. Well, that war was uh, over 70 years ago, and those novels still exist. So are they historical novels? It's hard to know. Do we call them historical novels? After a while, when a book is written, falls away, and there's only the internal time of the novel itself, and it's not important when it was written, if it works, if it's a good book. Uh, and this has been going on for a long time. Uh, we can bring out the big guns, including Tolstoy and Shakespeare. Um, Shape, probably Shakespeare's most popular play is Richard III. It's about the serial killer, and it's produced and played all the time. And uh, do you, there's a... Um, do you know... They, you probably know this, Martin. There's a a uh, King Richard III society in England that is, exists to disprove Shakespeare's calumnies about Richard III, that, that he was a kind and generous king, and thoughtful, and he, never, he wasn't this serial murder of, of children and so on. And, and so the question is, <clears throat> I mean, he, they may prove their case, but supposing they do, which, which is more valuable to us? The King Richard III view of of Richard or and Shakespeare or the society's view. I would prefer Shakespeare myself. I wonder, I, just to follow up on the question a, l- a little bit, because you've you've written um, Margaret in, in in defense of of, of science fiction and and uh, and Martin. Y- y- you also, I think, have have explored you know genres that are that are the seen as sometimes less less respectable or less of, of a you know less 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 prestigious and and I wonder what um, the 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 attraction or or um, as, as the questioner suggested the kind of the imaginative advantage for writer and reader um, of those kinds of narratives uh, might 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 be. Well, I. I uh... I would say that the, historic, the prestige of historical fiction is greater than that of science fiction, partly because it's an ancient form. Um, and science fiction is, is... My father wrote a book about science fiction called New Maps of Hell, one of the first lit-crit books about science fiction. Um, but he says it was a sort of naive form. It's like American jazz. It, it's, it was a form from below. Mm. And it was all written in the slicks, and it was people like 
uh, Kurt Vonnegut, but a generation earlier. Um, <coughs> so it, it, it struggles for recognition, this form, because there are no, there are, there's no war and peace. There is no Richard III um, yet. Uh, or or the, the, the tradition hasn't solidified. And also, I think people are just um, very suspicious about the future. They don't, they don't trust it. They don't sort of believe when they read about it. Hi. Um, my question is in the vein of the sort of conversation about Twitter and Facebook and the Internet. Um, I'm wondering if, it, if it's getting harder for people to focus and think for extended periods of time, then if you're trying to say or write something meaningful, you have two options. You can sort of write a 800-page manifesto that no one will read, uh, and you're <laughs> missing the point then, um, or you can write something and try and make it as entertaining as possible. But then you're also um, sort of selling the work short, and you're shifting away from the focus of what you're trying to say. So how do you hedge your bets and try and say something meaningful while reaching as many people as possible? Can you make your 800-page tome entertaining? <laughs> uh, you can try, but there's a sense that as soon as you make the effort to make something entertaining... But it's not entertaining. How about making it engaging? But um, I don't, don't, don't you think we can cut in and, and say that, that actually... You shouldn't be thinking about that sort of thing. Um, that you should be operating on instinct and never having much of a thought for who's going to read it. Um, well, you that's, have an very, that's very purist. Yeah, but I mean, I, you have an idealized idea. Um, Elmore Leonard said in, a, in an interview, and I, he's far too good a writer for this to be true, I think. He said, but when he started out, he looked at the market. said, what's going to work? And I, I, I think that's a, a suicidal impulse. Um, although he, you know, he did write westerns as well as thrillers, and he did turn out to have this marvelous ear where he, there are no false quantities for you know, dozens of pages in a row. It's an extraordinary ear he has, but he didn't know he had that. Um, but once you start visualizing a market, I think it's already over. You know, uh, forget it. <laughs> you shouldn't be trying to write. If, if, you, if you're doing that. Okay, I would add a Is that too bit, purist? Uh, in a way. I, I think you're right if, by what you mean once you start trying to visualize the readers because you're never going to know who those are anyway. But if you're looking at what kind of um, stage or form is available for your work to appear in, that's a different story. Um, ex, uh, two examples... Uh, there, there, was, there was no drama written in England during the reign of Oliver Cromwell because he shut down the theatres. And there just wasn't a possibility. There was no theatre written uh, after Oliver Cromwell either. I mean, well, the, you know, there's, there's Shakespeare and that's that. Well, uh, that's really purist, okay? Uh, but, but I mean it in the most elementary sense. There was, there was actually nothing produced because there wasn't any theatre. Or I'll give you an example that you will like better. Um, had there been no Russian magazines at the time of Chekhov, um, no magazines that published short stories in Russia, Chekhov wouldn't have written any short stories. 
But he might have. Uh, no, not according to him. No? No. He said, I write for money. That's what he said. So he was looking at the possibilities for himself, not necessarily trying to visualize the readers and try to second-guess the readers, but just where his work could appear. And in that sense, the Internet is opening up some new ways for work to appear. And if you really want to take a crack at the 800 thing, uh, page thing, you know, write it and then publish it in serial form <laughs> on the net. Why not? I will do. I'll email it to you. No, no, no. You don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> but for that, you've got to do what Charles Dickens did. And what Charles Dickens did when he was, when he was publishing in numbers, which were little um, signatures of a few chapters, he had to end each of those with a cliffhanger or some exciting thing that would make you want to read on. That's how come... And there would be riots on the wharf in New York City when the, the next Dickens was on yes, its way. Yes, because people were so... Because he ended the last one with what's going to happen. Is next. little Nell going to die? Yes, well, you know what he said. And even, even your namesake, Ed, Edgar Allan Poe, tossed the book, uh, The Old Curiosity Shop, dejectedly out of the window when he came to... Uh, the Out death the of window. Little Nell, yes. train he was traveling in. Oh. And he was then writing the murders of the Rue Morgue, so you'd think he'd be a bit tougher than that. <laughs> there seems to be a rise of anti, um, or sort of anti-elitism in American politics, where intellectual pursuits are seen as a liability. Like Romney was almost, it was a liability for him even that he spoke French. Um, and you see this in the U.S. and even in Canada with Mike Lignatiup when he was running for president. And I'm just wondering if you could offer your opinions on where that stems. From. I think that's always been true about politicians, hasn't it? You actually, you actually don't want the footnote guy, do you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes you want the smartest person in the room to be your leader. Well, but there's different ways of being smart. And uh, what you probably want is somebody who's got some political smarts uh, or somebody who's at least smart enough to, to avoid sinking the entire fortune of a country in some really uh, um, ill-advised, unnecessary war. I mean, that would have been a good idea. <laughs> but, you, to, 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 but, but you wouldn't have gotten that. You know, you wouldn't, it's not a question of an intellectual versus not an intellectual. It's a, it's a versus... A, it's a question of, of, of somebody who who's, can honor the truth. You know, and that, that needn't necessarily be an intellectual. But do you think anti-intellectualism more, more generally um, is, 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 a, is, a, is a, a, a rising cultural force in, in the English-speaking world or, or is always more or less constant? Or? I think it's always in the English-speaking world been more or less constant. Um, it's Dr. Johnson saying, I refute that, sir, by kicking a stone. You know, that's enough of your theories. Uh, the English, 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 English culture has always been pretty pragmatic in, in, its, in its way. Uh, and it is a language of nouns. And it's very heavy on the nouns and verbs. Uh, French, on the other hand, has got a lot of adjectives and adverbs. And German is pretty hopeless because you can make something into a noun 
which by putting a capital letter onto it and a, <laughs> and a noun ending, so you can get all sorts of you know foggy ideas made real. So it's, it's that it's that deeply embedded. It's a matter of the. Oh, well, what do the, I know? No, you. <laughs> Being, being from the English culture, I'm going to say, what do I know? <laughs> I think anti-intellectualism... If I were French, I would have a theory. <laughs> the, the French even have, have the most wonderful book about underwear, and it's a, it's a book of theory about underclothing. Now, you couldn't do that in English. Well, there wouldn't be enough material, I think. <laughs> it's a much... Anyway... Um, <laughs> I was going to say something about anti-intellectualism. It's too late now. (laughs) (laughs) We've either proven or disproven your point by now. I I think my point was simply that being smart isn't necessarily the same as being an intellectual. And anti-intellectualism exists in many English-speaking countries, but the American variant is worship of stupidity. And Um, that's a different thing. That is really a different thing. Very different thing. <laughs> are we almost through here? Uh, we are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So are you, you're going to have the last question. Um. Okay. Um, this is for Martin Amos. Uh, Martin, uh, many of your novels touch on, um, I guess, what I think are the leading edges of science, things like information, backwards time flow, things like that. But you sort of touch on them. They, they seem to, you know, be scattered amongst the pages, but not, but you have a novel underneath. And I guess my question is, do you, do you have any point of view about where science is going, the, the leading edge stuff? In other words, there's not matter, but there's information, things like that. Or are they just, you know, interesting concepts to you? But, uh, but they are, they're, they're Prevalent. I think um, you go to go to science as just another fund of imagery, and um, sometimes science, the the language of science is uh, very seductive, like the singularity, the black hole, the event horizon. What a marvelous concept that is! And uh, um, but I, I don't. I don't entertain big thoughts about science. I mean, it, it, cosmology is the one I'm most interested in. And um, it seems to me very significant that for the last th- two generations, 30 years perhaps, uh, all science has garnered is, uh, cosmology has garnered is humiliation. That uh, they keep finding things out that uh, destroy past knowledge. For instance, that the universe is expanding but also accelerating in its expansion. And a cosmologist said to me, that's like coming out of the house, throwing your keys up in the air, and instead of coming back into your hands, they go on going up. That's how radically it, it, um, it attacks previous knowledge. And I think uh, in all thought about uh, you know, human destiny and the destiny of the universe, what we have to... It, and it feels like a proof of something... What we have to acknowledge is that the universe is much cleverer than we are. And no one knows what, what all this superfluous, unreadable intelligence is. And uh, it sounds like almost like a, a, a proof of the existence of God. But it's certainly the proof of a higher intelligence, i.e. the universe. And why is it 
Why is it so much cleverer than we are? We're ten Einsteins away from getting close to an understanding of the universe. Meanwhile, cosmology is obsessed by this uh, strings theory that, has, that is completely unverifiable. Um, and the, 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 all cosmologists get the creeps but once a week when they think, oh, no, this, is, this is all nonsense. Is it? Well, that brings us back to Melville, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, yes, that's the, the other interpretation of yeah. the... Uh, Great white whale smashing through the pasteboard mask. Yeah. Um, well, thank you all. This has been uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you all for coming. And, uh, come back again. <laughs>